not your weekly sports pod. Welcome back to Not Your Weekly Sports Pod. Nabil, the real deal. I'm thinking about you, my brother. You're in my heart. You're with me always. We got a suitable sub for you today, though. I promise. We got a man who goes by the Onion Knight himself. My buddy, Will Gabriel, joining the pod, making his rookie freshman appearance. Welcome to the podcast, brother. Are you excited to talk some Westerosi politics? Oh, man. Yeah. All the fire and blood, man. Glad to be here. I think you're glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. The people listening are glad to be here, as exemplified by the numbers that House of the Dragon got. Nabil and I talked after the first episode about how it crashed the HBO Max app for a lot of people, and we didn't have the numbers out at that time, but this week they released, HBO did, the number of viewers, and the pilot drew in 10 million viewers to that opening episode, broke HBO records, and got it renewed for a second season, which I think was in the works regardless. But episode two, up 2% to 10.2 million. And since the opener, episode one has been viewed about 26 million times since its release. I think I don't have to like read you too much, Will, to assume that your happy Westeros is back in your life. You know, I don't think that we were ever going to be here for just one season. Um I, I think the one of the explanations for those numbers is that we're feeling like by a lot of people that were were feeling like burned by uh, the way Game of Thrones ended. Uh, I, I know I was certainly one of those people, and and so what you're seeing with that the increase uh, from you know from the first episode to the second episode is that people were telling their friends, their families, like no, hey, this shit was legit, it's good. And uh, and I think one of the things that's really going, that's going to differentiate, and I, I think you touched this, you touched upon this in, in your last episode, is that first, George R. R. Martin is a lot more involved um, with this show um, than he was uh, with, with Game of Thrones. We also got Miguel Sapochnik, who directed some of like, you know, your favorite episode of Game of Thrones, you probably directed it. Um, so, and just an all-star cast. So uh, I think that's what we're going to see. And I think it's going to keep going up and up um, as the weeks goes on that, you know, that word of mouth would be, yeah, this, this, it's kind of a redemption project, I think. I would agree with you. I think, you know, through COVID, like at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was at home rewatching their favorite series. I don't think I rewatched Game of Thrones other than like a few of those highlight episodes, a single time from start to finish. So I think people are ready to wash that bad taste out of their mouth. And really in this fractured state that we're in, except a monoculture that Game of Thrones was at its peak. So, you know, Will, I didn't initially think this would be like a week to week. Oh, House of the House of the Dragon recap every Wednesday night release. And I'm not sure if I'm going to go that direction with it. But this second episode, I think, is important to me. Because as it was referenced several times in the show, in this episode specifically, especially in Corlys Valerion's conversations with Daemon Targaryen, they mentioned the word second sons, right? And in a way, this, yeah. this second episode for TV series in general tend to be second sons, right? It's kind of the most difficult one to keep viewers interested in. The first episode sets the scene, builds the world. And the second episode has the burden of keeping you hooked, right? Keeping you invested in the show. Yeah. So give me like a 30 second elevator pitch of what this second episode did right in a really terse, concise manner for me. Well, I, I think this episode is, you know, setting up like what we anticipate is going to be the inevitable outcome is um, a, a civil war. And so what you're starting to see is that the seeds of those initial alliances are starting starting to form. Um, so you're starting to see the people that are probably going to end up um, on what I'm calling uh, Team Damon. Um, we don't yet see who's going to be on Team Rhaenyra's side, but we're starting to see those those seeds, and it's building up to what will uh, obviously, I think, 
I don't think it's going to be a spoiler to say this. Uh, I think that's what everybody knows this show is all about, is that eventually uh, King Viserys is going to die. It's probably going to be like a penultimate episode. That's what's really going to kick off the show, just like, you know, that first season of Game of Thrones when um, Robert uh, met that wild boar and that wild boar uh, beat Robert Baratheon. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, I think one thing me and Nabil were yearning for more of in the first episode was, hey, you know, you're marketing this show as succession with the paint of Westeros dumped over it. Give us more of those scenes. And what was this episode other than just beautiful dialogue with a couple of dragons thrown in here and there? And really, like you mentioned before the podcast, man, this is basically the Westerosi episode of The Bachelor, right? Viserys trying to find his wife. And progressive. Oh, yeah, that was very cringy. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit more about yeah. that later, but that was very awkward. Yeah, it, it was sweet and very, um, you know, I, I think it, it did favors to some characters, but this episode, this series hasn't been short on cringeworthy moments, whether it's performing a live C-section on television or, you know, betrothing a man to a 14-year-old girl who just wants to ride a massive dragon somewhere on the shore of Westeros. Yeah, it's, you know, on that, that first episode with uh, with Queen Emma and Al, and I was thinking just like, well, so yeah, this is the pro, that's the post-row world right there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's, that's what they want. It's like, baby mama, bye mama, <laughs> baby. Yeah. And then, you know, what happened? You got neither. We're, we're going to get into plenty of cringe later on in this episode, but we're going to open this kind of with the way the show opened. Um, to a lot of people's surprise, the opening episode didn't have that trademark Game of Thrones opening with the beautiful composing music of Ramin Djawadi that we're so used to. Episode two opened it up. So new intro. <laughs> I want you to walk yeah. me through what your initial knee-jerk reaction to it was. And now that it's settled down, how we both feel about it. So my first knee-jerk reaction was uh, full-on hype. Um, that that theme, that that main title theme, is like so iconic, and uh, I, I do understand the the sentiment. Like they wish it had come with a new like main title theme to kind of like distinguish it from uh, from Game of Thrones, um, you know, the the original series. Um, I, I I understand that. Uh, well, this is a classic iconic theme, and it also establishes continuity uh, between, you know, this series and then, you know, what happens 200 years later. Um, I think what I really, really liked about, like, the, the opening titles was the fact that uh, you're getting the bloodline. Like, it, it was literally Blood of the Dragon. That very first scene is uh, that node re uh, represented uh, King Aegon, Aegon and Conqueror. And, you know, when you saw in the background, like the Doom of Illyria, yeah. and it goes through the entire bloodline and that last, like that last note is, is uh, Rhaenyra uh, before it goes to the, the end of the opening tile. So I thought that was a really cool uh, touch. And it just shows like how the bloodline like just like totally spreads and just like, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, a little bit more of that. You know, each each title, you know, with the throw, it always gave a little hint about what the episode <laughs> was going to be about. So it's going to be really cool seeing, like, you know, what part of the Targaryen uh, family line is going to be revealed or talked about or connected, uh, you know, to what episode we're going to be watching. Yeah, what's interesting that you bring up there is, you know, it didn't really show all the monarchs in the history of House Targaryen, really just the ones that are connected to the current generation of Targaryens and family members that we're seeing in the show right now. Now, my knee-jerk reaction to it is one of frustration. And what I, what I mean by that is it makes me realize what a base moron I am. Like, I watched it on the first viewing, just looking at the screen like, what the fuck am I watching? And then I go back and see a breakdown video on YouTube, and I say, oh, it all makes sense. Like, the subtleties escape my my lowborn you know flea bottom brain as i like to say but there was a lot a lot in there that a lot of people missed that i definitely missed like you said the doom of valyria before it cuts to Aegon the first crown um and also really interestingly enough 
one of Aegon's sisters, both of whom are represented in that family tree bloodline, um, Rhaenys Targaryen, there's the image of her crown, or not necessarily her crown, but her family sigil with a spear through it, which is representative of her and her dragon dying in Dorne. And, you know, the sigil of House mm-hmm. House Martell is a spear with the sun behind it. Now, there wasn't a sun yeah. behind this spear. There was a dragon signifying Rhaenys' death. But it's going to be really interesting to see what they do, what subtle changes they make with that intro going forward in future episodes. And, you know, it's it's going to give a good economic kick to those YouTubers who can theory craft these really subtle hints that we see in the opening title sequence that you have to go back yeah. and really break down. I mean, it's so quick yeah. and it flows so beautifully that you really have to pause in sp- certain spots to truly appreciate what they're doing there. So I love it. Like the showrunners find more and more ways to show their artistry through the show. And this is just another example of it. I'm absolutely in. I'm excited to see what they do with it going forward. Yeah, yeah, same here, same here. So going straight from that, one of the things I found interesting was they opened the episode, you know, after they show the crab feet, the hint of the crab feeder scene, which was shot so beautifully, by the way, great form from the crab feeder, hammering dudes into the crosses for low tide. It, the dude has lats for days. He would do well at my lifetime fitness, but they open, <laughs> they open with yet again, another small council scene where they made the interesting decision to go ahead and jump six months ahead in the storyline. We're going to talk about the scene, but are you concerned at all as far as how the mainstream common viewer, the non diehard game of Thrones or song of ice and fire fans are going to react to a show that episode to episode, not only jumps ahead six months at a time, but, you know, down the line in the story, we're going to be jumping years ahead in time. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's just their way of like, you know, remember that first season of Game of Thrones was like a very, very slow burn. Um, and I think that um, they're kind of trying to strike that balance between people that are familiar with the Seven Kingdoms and then people who are new and they're kind of cutting the fat, like, you know, what happened through those, through those six months? Like, um, I, I think they made a judgment call that it doesn't really matter what happened in, in those six months. Like, if, there, if something important happened, they'll probably reference it uh, later on in, in a flashback. But they're really trying to, like, push, you know, push and advance the narrative. Uh, we already know that, you know, there's, there's, there's two different actresses, you know. Uh, you know, we've got, um, uh, we've got Milcock and then, you know, we're going to eventually, we're going to see an, an older uh, Rhaenyra um, by, uh, by Emma Darcy. So uh, I think they're just trying to like, you know, push the narrative. They know they don't have a lot of like, 10 episodes seems like a lot until it isn't. And so they're trying to push the narrative, I think. Yeah, this is 30 years of events we're going to go through in, in this, you know, Dance of the Dragon timeline story that we see in the book. So it, I'm not concerned about it either, man. You know, one of the better shows on HBO, I think the show that this is going to be the heir to in terms of the greatest show of the year, Succession. You know, Succession had some time jumps as well, where if the narrative plot that they're kind of crafting here and spinning for you is digestible and you don't have to do a lot of exposition in the time jumps, which we don't see a lot of here, I think you can make it work. And the only thing really crazy that happened yeah. off screen in between the first episode and the second episode is the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Ryan Redwin, I think was his name, ends up passing away peacefully in his sleep. Also, like, <laughs> this is a guy who has heavy ties to the Game of Thrones series. You know, Jon Snow in the books would pretend to be him when he was, you know, learning how to joust and, and fight in the yards of Winterfell. And Sansa even had a dream that he saved her when she was being, you know, taken by some wildlings. So shout out Ride Redwin. I guess this is the corner of the episode where we give him his dues and pass him on to the Silent Sisters to do with him what they will. Now, oh, yeah. Now, again, man, I love, I, I don't know how, we've gotten more in these first two episodes. We've gotten way more small council scenes than we had in all eight seasons <laughs> of Game of Thrones. So this small council scene about the triarchy and, you know, exactly what this kind of what this roadblock 
to Viserys, along with all the other things happening in his kingdom, as told by his small council. I thought it'd be a fun little exercise before we get into the episode to talk about how the old kings would have handled this. <laughs> and you're not you're not like the biggest book reader, <laughs> but Aegon the first. Are you familiar kind of with his conquest of Westeros, how he did things? Uh, dragons. Dragons, yeah. dragons, and he, he you know, he pulled <laughs> what we saw Daenerys did, uh uh bend to me and jo- join me and refuse and die. Um, uh, I can tell you how his, uh, his son, uh, Vigor the first would probably handle it. Uh, <laughs> um, he would have been uh, extremely, uh, with great prejudice, heads on spikes as a warning to all who were there, uh, opposed the blood of the dragon. Um, and then of course we probably know how, how Daenerys would have handled it, uh, as well. Uh, yeah, more Dracarys, Dracarys, Dracarys. <laughs> yeah, I, I- think it's fair to say Magor would have sent nobody to the wall you're either burning or your head is on a spike um you have sent pieces of them to the wall yeah and then Eris the mad king probably just burns Westeros down just because he's not in a good mood I I disagree though I think Daenerys would have sent like Davos to make peace with the crab feeder and bring him some fermented crabs or something just to connect this back to the game of Thrones So there is some light there, but um, yeah, Viserys just basically sending a cease and desist letter. That's not working, dude. And you're seeing, you know, you're seeing little hints all throughout this episode of kinks in the armor of Viserys as a character, as a king, you know, really highlighted at the end by what Damon says about him, which we'll get to down the line. But again, the small council scenes, we've had so many of them in the first two episodes. If we get one every single episode, I will not be mad about it right like if it's google calendar you open up auto high towers google calendar and he has five days of the week <laughs> small council meetings up there i think he's setting himself up for a pretty good lifestyle so one thing i want to yeah. jump to man in terms of the great scenes here my top three scene in all of westeros television the dragonstone bridge scene yeah yeah it, it, you know, and it just kind of like goes to the weakness. It just kind of reminds you that like dragons are basically nuclear weapons. So the idea that the hand of the king, you know, Lord Otto Hightower, is just going to like roll up to Dragonstone and say, "Yo, bro, give me back the dragon egg," and that's not how that's going to happen. And the fact that you know, Rhaenyra like swoops in and basically saves his ass and, you know, gets back the, uh, you know, Dream Spider egg peacefully with, without any bloodshed, uh, you know, just kind of like re- reminds you that, you know, in spite of what was said, like in the last episode, you know, when they said where we are without dragons, where we're just like, we're just people. And yet the fact that, that the Targaryens do have dragons, which means they are closer to the gods than they are to mortal men. Um, there's something else that, like, in that scene that I don't know if you picked up that, like, it, it seems to me that, that Damon Targaryen um, still retains some affection for, uh, for his niece, and that he's, like, angry, I think, at, 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 the, at the, just the situation, um, not necessary, like, with her. Now, that could change later on down the road, but I don't know, if, like, if you, like, picked up on that within that, that scene. Absolutely. Think. Look at his body language when he's confronted by Otto, right? He's standing up straight, confident, mocking Sir Kristen Cole, calling him Crispy Cole, Crispin Cole, um, <laughs> you know, drawing his sword against Otto Hightower. You know, the, the second he feels threat, Caraxes, good boy Caraxes, long neck, don't care, Caraxes, comes out from behind the castle walls and backs him up. And like you mentioned, man, when Rhaenyra comes up to him, he kind of starts, you know, turning his shoulders from side to side. He kind of like brings his neck down a little bit. So I absolutely, not just the way he spoke to her, the tone in High Valyrian that they spoke to each other, almost like bantering with one another back and forward, but his body language was telling. And one other thing I noticed, man, on my second watch of this episode is how much this really hurt Rhaenyra. 
You notice in the opening of the episode, all the way up until the small council meeting where the dragon keepers tell Viserys that the dragon egg has been taken, Rhaenyra is still wearing that Valyrian steel necklace that Damon mm. gave her. And you notice when she lands on Cyrax at Dragonstone, she's not wearing it anymore, nor does she the rest of the episode. So there's definitely a palpable tension between these two characters that, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but it was kind of in the trailers for the series when you see the older actor Emma Darcy and Damon Targaryen holding hands and having like a blood oath marriage that this is going to come to a a tipping point Mm -hmm. at some point. How it happens, where it happens, I'm not sure, but you can definitely feel some chemistry between these two. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, seeing more of that. Uh, one thing I will, I want to point to, to Sir Kristen Cole uh, when they are, when uh, Damon does have that little backhanded insult. And I do recall that uh, Sir Kristen Cole said, uh, perhaps my prince recalls when knocked him off his horse. And I got to say, my reaction, I, I tackled. Uh, my reaction is like, uh, fire uh, maybe can't burn a dragon, but Sir Kristen Cole can. <laughs> the jabs that these guys all have at one another is beautiful. <laughs> I think I think if Twitter, like Twitteros was around back in the day, like the Twitter subtweets between all these different characters would be great. I don't, yeah. I don't think, I don't think yeah. there'd be any subtweets between Damon and Otto, though. If Otto made like an announcement on Twitter, a Trump-like announcement that Sir Damon is, is committing sedition against the crown, Damon would just respond with the word cunt, period, and end it there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, can we talk about um, the... Um, some of the questionable matchmaking that um, that's trying to happen between between His Grace and um, um, and, and and House of Valerian. Um, so, Lady uh, uh, his Lena. daughter. I'm sorry, yeah, Lena Valerian. Like, how old is she? I think she's 12 in the books at that point, not to bed him until she's 14. So there's going to be two years of asking about Vagar and playing on her phone in her bedchambers before she comes in and starts talking to him about the stone statues that he loves so much. That, so that entire scene was just incredibly cringy, like incredibly cringy. Um I don't know if you've watched the uh, uh, the Watchers in the Bar YouTube channel. It's a bar called the Burlington uh, in Chicago in Logan Square, uh, and they actually had their reactions to that scene. And everybody was just like, uh, like same reaction. Um, but that scene also flows into the the next uh, 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 interaction between. Uh, Princess Renice and Princess Rhaenyra. Yeah, I think the the sixth man of this episode, Princess Renice, the queen who never was, really, really mm-hmm. makes her mark. You can tell, dude. I don't know if you notice this. If you if you watch enough movies or critique enough art to tell when an actor or an actress in this instance really is having a good time, and I think there's three in particular who are having a good time with their roles. One is Matt Smith playing Damon Targaryen. Oh, you can, yeah. You can, you can yeah. tell he's having a ball, dude. And I don't know the actress's name, but the one who's playing Rhaenys. And the last one is the guy who's playing Otto Hightower, the, the lizard from the uh, Spider-Man series. I believe uh, 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 Rhaenys is Eve Best. You're right. Yes. Yeah. But, but in this scene, I, I think she really shines in standing toe-to-toe with Rhaenyra after Rhaenyra hits her with a few jabs as well in revealing some of these harsh truths to her, which was one of the great things about the early seasons of Game of Thrones is you're following these noblemen, these princesses, these lords, these ladies. And from time to time, when you have reality checks from characters like Tyrion Lannister or from Ned talking to his children, we haven't really gotten that so far in this series and getting that kind of shining moment from Rainey's talking to Rhaenyra, giving her, and again, you know, Rainey's is going to be a huge character 
in this dance of the dragons that that we're going to see here that really the civil war i think is going to start in season two so we're just getting hints of her character but i think she played the scene well and you find her in the background of a lot of these scenes in this second episode, right? When Rhaenyra is picking her new Kingsguard, Kristen Cole, you see her in the background kind of examining her and seeing how she's playing her cards. Because I'm sure in a lot of ways, Rhaenyra reminds her of a younger version of herself, whether she's empathetic to that, whether she's jealous of that, whether it's a mix of both. I think we're yet to see because we haven't really explored her motivations or her character too much yet, but we've got a whole season to do that. So I was very intrigued to see that interaction. And I think there's more to come from that. I, I was kind of like one of the, like the, the quotes that kind of like, you know, stood out for me in the episodes when, when Princess Renée said, um, men would sooner put the realm to the tourists than see a woman on an iron throne. And the entire time I, I was thinking about that quote, I'm like, think about Cersei, like hold my wire fire, <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly she she held true to that word she called her bluff on that but oh yeah but yeah also hints of um don't think lena bringing up vagar was just for nothing just hold on to that one for later on in the show that's going to come back in yeah. some way the other scene um, that really it, go ahead man i'm sorry no i was like if i recall doesn't doesn't Lena have an older brother? She does. I think his name is Lenor Valerion. I'm I'm curious if we're gonna see more of him. Um it's maybe, you know, because you know what happens at you know at the end of the episode. If like maybe that'll be like a peace offering of like, you know, maybe they get betrothed like Lenor and like uh Rhaenyra. Uh, become uh, engaged to be married as a peace offering and since you know <laughs> uh, King Uther has pulled that little 180 right there that small council meeting the abomination as Corliss Valerion called it um, and what an interesting uh, yeah. what an interesting dichotomy that would be to the conversation Rhaenyra has with Damon on the bridge where she tells him hey you already have a wife and he says not one of my choosing right if, if we're to think that there's hints of chemistry and romance between those two characters. And Rhaenyra gets betrothed to this powerful house, Valerion, for political purposes to appease Corlys. What an interesting setup that would be for her character to empathize with Damon a little bit down the line. So I think absolutely that's going to come into play yeah. at some point. And I don't think that's a spoiler, right? We've seen scenes with the son of House Valerion in the actual trailers. So I think a lot of people are anticipating mm-hmm. seeing him and seeing the whole family brought more into the fold as one of the most ancient houses in Valeria. Also, man, not to jump too far ahead into the episode, but a lot of people questioned Viserys and all, <laughs> all of his actions in this episode. Like, if there was someone who lost this episode, it's definitely Viserys. Nabil calls him Viserys the Cuck. Right. He goes yeah. he goes from yeah. in one episode ruining the relationship he has with his daughter, ruining the relationship his daughter has with her best friend and citing the most wealthy and sec- arguably the second most powerful family in Westeros with his brother enemy, Damon Targaryen. But I'm going to defend my boy Viserys for a second here. If you're worried about threats to your family and your bloodline. What greater threat is there than to give more power to this ambitious, wealthy sea lord who controls the seas, right? The whole, the whole line in Fire and Blood is the Targaryens control the air, the Valerians control the sea, and together they reign supreme over Westeros. So as we learn later on in the episode, Corlys is a second son. He killed his brother, the king, to become the king of Driftwood or Driftmark. I'm sorry. And so... From Viserys's perspective, although he may not be privy to that information, that's a dangerous move, giving a man of his station and his motivations that kind of power and that kind of seat at the table. Because as we see in the yeah. first episode, yeah, when they're in the small council meeting and, you know, Rhaenyra is the cupbearer filling everyone's cups of wine, Corlys puts his hand over his glass because he understands, I'm not a high-born lord. I can't just fuck around with these other guys. I need to be on my A game if I'm going to get what I want and if I'm going to advance my station even further than where I'm at. 
which is, again, the most wealthy family in Westeros. Yeah, and that's like just kind of like the whole modus operandi for 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 most like uh, of the noble houses. It's like um, increase your your standing, uh, uh, solidify your your house's position, uh, because um, if you don't, you can be entirely wiped out. You can all get end up with your heads on spikes uh, or sent to the wall. Yeah, man. It's it, just to stay on his character for a second. What do you think about the scene he had at the very end of the episode with Damon? I think that goes back to like you know we're starting to see some of these some of these uh, alliances. You know we start to see some of these sides being taken. The pawns being assembled on, on the chessboard for what you know we'll, we assume will probably be. A, a, a civil war uh, that'll happen or for the Iron Throne. Um, it's going to be interesting how that turns out. I, you know, are they going to go straight to rebellion or are they going to use like whatever action they're going to take, take against the triarchy and the, and the, and the, and these pirates of Essos to uh, maybe solidify his position as, uh, as heir to the Iron Throne. Um, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. Um, one thing that I, I don't know if you've noticed that it seems like the Iron Throne doesn't like the series. What there, with the? There's been hints, right? There's been hints in the book yeah. George R. R. Martin's made that, and I think you I think you texted me this before the episode that the Iron yeah. Throne rejects those who aren't worthy of it. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, if, uh, you know, one thing that happened is, like, King, King, you know, Mager first of his name, um, he was also known as Mager the Cruel. He was, uh, he, he was a piece of shit, basically. And the way his, uh, his life ended is that uh, he was found, like, impaled uh, by one of the blades uh, from the Iron Throne. And to the, you know, people didn't know like how did he die? Like, was did somebody stab him from behind? And a lot of people think that it was the throne that was like rejecting him, just like had enough. Um, so it's 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 kind of going to be it's going to be really interesting to see. I thought it was very interesting like that first episode where um, Damon sat on the Iron Throne and he was not harmed at all. Yeah, uh, well so. said. Yeah, and it's you know not to. I don't think Game of Thrones, Dan and Dave in particular, were very weary of this. They didn't really explore the magical element of things, right? But we know just from the lore of this that there is a lot of magic involved with the whole world of Westeros and particularly the Targaryens. I mean, think about the scene we mentioned before, the Dragonstone Bridge scene. The second Daemon is threatened, Caraxes has almost like a telepathic magical bond with him where he shows up out of nowhere. And like we know from the Game of Thrones series, Valyrian steel, which is formed by forged by Dragonfire, is the only thing that can kill the White Walkers, another magical entity mm-hmm. from the land that is always winter up north. So the Iron Throne being, you know, a creation of Aegon the First, Aegon the Conqueror, nearly a hundred years before the events of this series, a creation of all the swords of the lords who he defeated in Westeros when he came up the hill, the King's Hill, to finally take over the mainland of Westeros, those are sword, swords that were melted by the dragon fire of Beleriand, the Black Dread. And thus, yeah. there is a magical element to the Iron Throne itself as well. Yeah, I, I, could, I totally agree. And I think one thing that I think we're starting to see is like, you know, one thing they kind of mentioned is like, you know, the last run, writer of Valerian the Black Blackthread was was King Viserys. Uh, and he never wrote an, or was bonded with another dragon. So it kind of makes me wonder it's like, you know, it, it, can Targaryen like can Targaryens only be bonded to one dragon at a time or be bonded for one dragon for for, for life? Like it kind of makes you wonder I wonder if they're gonna explore that a little bit more about how, you know, how how Targaryens like kind of built this bond with their dragons. You know, we remember at the end of season season one when Daenerys emerged from that funeral pyre for um, uh, for the Blood Witch, and 
and and Cal Drogo, and you know she emerged from the fire with those three dragon eggs, and um, now we're starting to see it's like, oh hey, maybe you don't need to like because they're just saying, hey, we're just gonna put the egg in inside the babe's cradle, and then it's gonna hatch, and they're gonna be like best best friends. Like, I wonder if we're gonna find out. <laughs> we're gonna find out a little bit more about that. We, I think we are because you're gonna see a lot of bonding. Uh, between dragon riders and dragons as the show progresses. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Here I am, Nabil. I'm doing this for you. I'm defending Viserys the Cuck consistently on this episode. So, Will, I know you mentioned like he never takes another dragon through the rest of his life. And I think he hints at the philosophy behind this in the first episode where he's talking to Rhaenyra, where he says dragons are a power man shouldn't have trifled with. I think he sees, you know, the only thing that could end the House of the Dragon is the dragon itself, meaning conflict within the family and symbolically, in a sense, dragons themselves. I think I think he's seen as, you know, mentioned by the small council, Damon could be another Magor the Cruel. I think he's seen what dragons can do in the wrong hands. You know, as we saw in Game of Thrones, Daenerys basically wielding two nuclear weapons over King's mm-hmm. Landing. And these dragons really being nuclear weapons. I mean, the, the bridge scene, dude. Sir Kristen Cole, who were introduced as this confident, witty, jousting knight, his mouth was open the entire time as soon as Caraxes came onto the screen all the way until the end. And we see Otto Hightower curse for the first time where he speaks the words of House Hightower, she the fucking steel. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't... From Viserys' standpoint, I don't know if it's a matter of him just being a weaker Targaryen, if it's the angle of, you know, Targaryens can only bond with one dragon during their lifetime, or if it's what I mentioned before. I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting to see more of that, and I think they'll explore the lore of dragons a little bit more, kind of like we've already seen, right? I mean, in Game of Thrones, I challenged Nabil to this, to this essay, and I want to do the same thing to you, man. Can you name off the top of your head the other two dragons that Daenerys had alongside Drogon, which she named after her level her lover Cal Drogo? Let's see. So we've got Drogon, um, we've got Viserion, and we've got Rhaegal. Well done. Well done. And aside from their names and the size of Drogon, there was really nothing else to differentiate them other than their colors, which the older they got, the more subtle their color shade became on the green screen. And so I'm interested to see them really explore this lore of dragons and embracing this magical aspect to it. And we've seen it already, man, right? Cyrax is this beautiful, golden, majestic dragon that kind of mirrors the personality of Rhaenyra in certain ways. And Caraxes, like we said, they call him the bloodworm in the books. He's got the Mm -hmm. long neck. He's kind of deformed with the wings on his hind legs. And he sounds like a cat screeching at like one in the morning when, when he comes out and screams <laughs> to defend Damon's honor, I guess. So it's going to be interesting to see that. But yeah, Viserys is still a character that I'm kind of sympathetic to, man. Right. Like you think about the prophetic burden that he has. Right. The burden of losing both his wife and his son, which feeds into this existential threat up north that only the Targaryens and the dragons can battle and the haste in which he needs to produce an heir. Like, he's no fool. He understands just how devastating naming a queen heir can be for the realm, for the stability of the realm. And so he has the burden of these things, and he has no one he can talk to about these things. What would what do you think the relationship between he and Rhaenyra would be if he told her, hey, I made the decision to kill your mother to bring forth my heir, and the heir didn't make it either? Do you think she could ever forgive him for that? I think that she would have to, you know, what was it that Maester Amos said? Love is a death of duty. Um, Full side, yeah. You know, in that world, in, in that in, in that world, you know, your duty is to propagate your house. Um, and then if you, and in the context that she now knows about you know, he had the dream, the Azura Zai, the prince that was promised, like, you know, prophecy. He dreamed that, like, it, you know, I don't think she's going to be okay with it, but, you know, she knows what the stakes are now. Yeah. And we see, like, in the preview for the next episode, 
this really conflicted face on Millie Alcock's face when Viserys is carrying Aegon the baby, his his now male heir with Alison Hightower. And even though she understands the duties, she's still a human being. And that kind of brings me over to, I'm done talking about the doom and gloom of, of Viserys the cuck and, and Damon's plight <laughs> and wanting someone to give him attention. I want to talk about who won this episode. So for me, I, I'm interested to hear your take, but for me, Millie Alcock, man, I am absolutely oh, yeah. blown away by her performance as a young Reina Tar- Targaryen. You know, in particular, like I mentioned, the face that she makes in that preview, the range, of, the range of emotions that she's showed in just two episodes, right? Whether it's showing this high, majestic power when she speaks ancient Valyrian yeah. to Damon on the bridge, whether it's the vulnerability of when she's with Alicent in the Sept of Baelor, or if it's the last scene, which is beautifully directed and shot, where you go back and forward between her face, Alicent's face, Viserys's face, and we see the betrayal in her eyes. I think Millie yeah. Alcock has absolutely blown this role away. And interestingly enough, you know, they actually cast Emma Darcy first as Renera Targaryen. Millie was cast afterwards as a younger version of Emma Darcy. So this isn't, yeah. you know, this isn't like Millie Alcock owns Renera Targaryen. This is Emma Darcy's character that Millie Alcock has a temporary lease on. And she's absolutely making the most of it. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, I would I would say that as a loser for the episode, um, Alice at Hightower, like she did what she needed to do. It doesn't mean she was happy about, about it. Uh, you even saw it on her face. Like nobody was happy there uh, in that small council room, um, except maybe uh, the Lord Hand, Otto Hightower, who I would say is probably a winner in this episode. He is. I, and, you know, I'm interested to see Allison. really all we've seen from her so far. And from what I've heard from the reviewers that have seen the first six episodes is I, I think her name is Olivia Cook, who's playing the older version of Allison Hightower later on Queen Allison Hightower, who produces all these heirs of Viserys Targaryen. I'm really interested to see what they do with this character, because the young version of Allison really has just been a device that all these men are using to scheme, right? To scheme to gain power and to move the chess pieces on the board, so to speak. We haven't really seen her motivations. Really, the only kind of character hints of her we've seen are in these vulnerable moments with Rhaenyra, which now we're learning she's kind of manipulating Rhaenyra as well. Rhaenyra confides in her in the Sept of Baelor, and she doesn't return the favor. She kind of encourages her to go open up to her father and that her father will reciprocate that love. And she whispers in her father's ear to do the same to Rhaenyra. But all this time, she's absolutely playing behind the scenes. So I wonder at what point we're going to get a hint kind of behind the curtains of what Alicent wants, because she's going to be a very prominent figure in the events to come. It's, you know, so Allison, I, I am getting some like, I'm wondering if we're going to get like some amalgamation of like Cersei, Cersei Lannister and Marguerite Tyrell. Like, like she's playing, she's playing her cards kind of like close to the vest, but I, I'm like wondering if like, we're going to find out what kind of like, what kind of person she really is. Um, so it's, it's definitely a stay tuned. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. It's going to be, <laughs> this is like the one hesitancy I have about this show is becoming so invested in these characters for six episodes and then switching to completely new actors and actresses. I have faith. They haven't let me down so far, so I'm going to maintain my valor here. But I'm kind of skeptical about that. I have one other just nitpick, I'll call it. Not a problem necessarily, but my one nitpick. And I want to hear if you have any thus far. In Game of Thrones, we had like representatives, vessels for the viewers, right? Like all the great TV series have it, like Succession, for example. Uh, Cousin Greg the Egg is kind of our window into the world of these absurd billionaires, the common guy who enters this ridiculous situation, this ridiculous obscene wealth and how he responds to it. Game of Thrones, the same way. Jon Snow's the bastard who's not allowed in the feasting hall during the the 
entertainment of the king in Winterfell. We have Brienne of Tarth, a lady who's not really a lady. We have all these different characters that represent the common folk, the, the flea-bottom peasants like Sir Davos, and uh, who was the, the, the Baratheon bastard? I forget his name. Gendry? Oh, yeah. We haven't really had that thus far in House of the Dragon. And granted, you know, p- more prominent characters are to come. We didn't meet Tywin Lannister until like episode six of Game of Thrones. But I'm interested to see. We keep hearing all this talk about the realm, about the folks, about the common folk, about law and order. But we haven't really seen a representative of that thus far. Yeah, we really haven't yet. And I, I, I think that, you know, we, you know, it's just going to be a, a, a stay tuned. I, I think right now, like, I think the closest that we might have to, like, kind of like a point of view character, like somebody that we can kind of like project or kind of like our own, probably would be Allison Hightower, at least for the time being. Um, you know, that's that could probably change later on, but I think she's like probably the closest that we have to a POV character and to a, a certain extent, um, um, uh, Princess Rhaenyra. I agree. I think they're going to be, there's going to be a juxtaposition between those two characters when they age in terms of their motivations and how they go about serving those motivations. Um, and I think just now we're starting to see the cracks in the foundations. I'm, that's one of the things I'm looking forward yeah. to the most. Do you have any gripes or nitpicks so far? You know, the, the only gripe that I guess I, I, I have is that, you know, we didn't get like a, an opening title, like an opening thing that was like really unique uh, to, uh, 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 to House of the Dragon. Um, like I said, it's a small, small nitpick. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jam to, to the original theme like all day, every day. Uh, but uh, there, there's still a part of me that wishes that we had something that uh, kind of set this show uh, apart, uh, just like musically and thematically from like, you know, the original Game of Thrones series. It's a small nitpick. And who better to do it than Ramon Jawani, right? Like he, he even yeah. did, he did hints of it in this episode, actually, when Rhaenyra finally like, you know, basically wins on the bridge without bloodshed, as she tells Viserys, you hear for the first time her theme music start to play. Yeah. And it reaches its climax as she's walking back proudly to Viserys's chamber to explain her actions. She earns her theme. So, yeah, I think yeah. it would have been nice for them to have confidence in Ramin Jawani. And it, I mean, he was a highlight of the later seasons of Game of Thrones. This, the score he did, the, the composition he did, in the episode where Cersei burns the entire sept of Baylor with House Tyrell in it with wildfire, that was one oh, of the yeah. most beautiful compositions I've ever seen in any work of television or movie. Period. Yeah, that that piece is called Light of the Seven, and it is probably one of my favorite of uh, uh, pieces of music by uh, uh, Ramin Djawadi. Who knows? Maybe when uh, when all this beef with <laughs> with Warner Bros and Discovery and them cutting all this stuff, when they finally gain their grounds and they have some confidence in the show and it breaks all sorts of records, maybe they'll give him his roses and they'll let him do one. But for right now, uh, yeah. it's just a little nitpick. I'm not too disappointed in it. Um, episode one got an eight out of ten for me. Episode two, nine out of ten. I, I think we're we're almost there to the Game of Thrones level of magic. I don't think it's quite there yet, but how would you yeah. rank the second episode in that term? I would do like a 9.2 out of 10. 9.2, very nice. Very, I gave it a tepid 9 out of 10. <laughs> I want to I end this episode with the quote of the episode. I want to hear your quote. I'll start with mine. You, I know you chuckled when, uh, when Damon had his interaction with uh, Sir Kristen Cole. I, I love the way he responded to him, too. He gave him a little cackle as well and said, ah, very, what did he say to him? How did he respond? He said, very good or very impressive. Um, I, I love any quote from Damon. And my quote of the episode is in that last scene where Corliss is discussing with Damon just what a failure Viserys's reign has been. Damon responds to him. He says, I will speak of my brother as I wish. You will not. 
<laughs> absolutely love it. And, yeah. abs- and absolutely emphasizes that at his core, Damon is a family man. Damon is a Targaryen. Damon's core motivation is wanting attention and love from his brother, which he hasn't gotten. Like he mentions to him, you never named me hand. Yeah. Like he, like he says when Otto confronts him, where's my brother? Like that's really what he wanted. He just wanted his brother to show up to give him a little attention and to acknowledge him. Yeah. Um, I, I think my, my, my favorite quote is probably um, during the small council when, um, when Lord Otto uh, Hightower is addressing, you know, the king's duty. Um, uh, you're the king and I do not envy you. And it's just like, it just like really just drives home. Just like, you know, you know, sitting on the iron throne is, is, is an awesome responsibility. And like, you know, if it, I, I sure, I wouldn't want to do it either. Like you have to like, look at like, Betting a 12-year-old girl to protect the realm? Yikes. Yeah, they, they make... Not that I, don't, it, I don't know if any other show has done this, but they make duty such a dirty word. Yeah, yeah. It, it's... It, 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 they do make it to where it's... Yeah, we gotta do what I gotta do, but damn, I don't want to do it. <laughs> And he says it in such a manipulative way, right? Like telling, basically yeah. telling Viserys, hey, dude, no, you can't let Rhaenyra be the heir to the Iron Throne. You got you got a fucking duty to replace her. And that duty serves my prime motivation, which is power. And yeah. contradicting his own words about Damon, or rather really reaffirming his own words about Damon, saying the gods never made a man who lacked patience for absolute power. So we're going to end the episode there. Yeah. We'll see, we'll see how this turns out, man. We'll see how this episode does. This might be a week-to-week thing. Yeah. Or we'll maybe pick back up halfway through the season. And if so, man, me and Nabil would love to have you live. We'll do a sit-down with our really primetime studio equipment. And we'll make a show out of it, man. Oh, I'm excited. You know, I know it's like, I know you guys usually do a sports podcast. You know, I know this week. Uh, we've got the we got the Astros Rangers uh, series going right now, uh, so I assume you'll probably want to talk about that. But hey, yeah, I'm game for like talking about episodes three and four. Um, yeah, the next time you want to talk about Game of Thrones, all right? Sorry, House of the Dragon. <laughs> no, every I'm a all my nurses at work consistently refer to this as the new Game of Thrones series. I, I don't know if that's ever going to stop. We Eight years of the greatest TV show in history during the prime of the golden era of television. There's only so much you can do to oh, yeah. you know uncondition yourself from it. But yeah, we won't miss any opportunities to shit on the city of Dallas. So go Astros. And until next time, Astros. go Astros. Until next time, Will, thank you so much for joining us. Bye. All right, bye. Hashtag Team Rainier.